Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, a podcast where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Anika and in this episode I'm joined by Jennifer and Laura to talk about solar cells uh, and their sustainability. So to start off with, Jennifer, why do you care about solar cells and what's your interest in them? I personally have a background in research. I used to characterize perovskites that were mainly used for solar energy applications. Awesome. And Laura, what about yourself? Oh, well, I've never worked with them. I've heard a lot about them at material science conferences that I've attended. And I really like the idea of my house being like completely self-sufficient and generating its own electricity. But I've not really been entirely convinced that I could do that with just solar panels alone. And my bills are quite low anyway. So buying more technology for me doesn't really seem like a good idea if I want to become this amazingly carbon neutral, completely self-sufficient, sustainable household. That's the dream, right? I think for a lot of us, and especially with the electricity prices that are going through the roof. Uh, at the moment so maybe there will be a kind of tipping point in the future where it would be kind of more cost effective in order to be able to do that before I go completely off on another uh, tangent maybe we can start with defining what is a solar cell Laura do you, do you know what it is those solar panels that people have on their roofs they're made of quite a few things but the what I've heard about at conferences was the important bit is this um the semiconductor material that's usually made from silicon okay so that's the bit that conducts electricity when sunlight shines on it. Yeah. And apparently it's called a semiconductor because it conducts as much as an insulator, but not as much as a conductor, which I find a bit of a circular definition. But there you go. Ah, OK. So I, I never knew that, actually. So traditionally, solar cells are made of silicon. Why? Why? <laughs> Is it, because they're, is it because they're a semiconductor? Is there any other reasons? I was trying to read into this before, and it's definitely not my background. And it's not something that came up in the material science conferences that I remember. But there's a limit that I think was calculated by two people whose names I'm not going to pronounce because I'm not sure how to pronounce them. They defined this limit using... Um, What's the wavelengths of energy coming from the sun? What's the, the different wavelengths of visible light? Mm-hmm. How can you absorb as much of that light as possible? And what other effects do you have to account for? And there's something called a, a band gap in these semiconductors, which is the difference in energy between the electrons that are really closely bound to the nucleus of the atom. And then the ones that are further away, the electrons that can move around the so-called valence bands. That band gap is um, to be most efficient at turning photons of light into electricity. That band gap is about 1.1 electron volts, which is what pure crystalline silicon gives you. That's why silicon. I think it's also one of the most abundant elements on Earth. So that that's handy. We're not having to do a lot of, <laughs> say, a lot of refining. We're not having to look really hard for silicon. We can find it pretty much anywhere. And then it just needs to be purified to get it really, really pure. Awesome. It seems a bit of a a wonder material that you can use it for solar cells. We also have Silicon Valley, where I guess they make the the chips and computers from them. I only know because, again, this week I was watching another K-drama and they go to Silicon Valley in that one. It's called Startup. Great drama if anyone wants to watch it. Okay, so silicon is kind of the conventional conventional material. Jennifer, you mentioned something called perovskite at the beginning, which you used to do work on. Is that another type of material that we can use to make solar cells? Yes, it's another type of semiconductor material. A lot of people haven't heard of perovskites. Most people know about silicon-based solar cells. 
It's not surprising since the potential of using perovskites as light absorbers for solar energy applications was first discovered in 2009. So that's not even two decades ago. The researcher who led this discovery was Miyasaka. And the efficiency of perovskite solar cell devices at this time was 3.8%. And six years after this first discovery of the perovskite solar cell devices, the conversion efficiency reached 22.1%. This kind of increase hasn't been seen with any other type of solar cells, including silicon. But I mean, that might be due to technological advancements in research. I mean, the first uh, silicon-based solar cells were produced in the 1950s, and technology has come a long way since then. That's crazy. And is 22% good? Or do we need to have higher if we can use those uh, instead of silicon? That was six years after the first discovery, but nowadays it's uh, on par with silicon, at least for single crystalline uh, silicon, so or single crystal silicon. So perovskite solar cells has an efficiency today of around 25.7%, whereas single crystal so, uh, silicon solar cells have an efficiency of 26.1%. So there's a difference about of about 0.5% in efficiency. So they're almost at the same level. I think I'd read that the absolute limit of efficiency for silicon-based solar cells is about 30%, I think. So do you know if it's the same for perovskites, Jennifer? Or is the theoretical maximum higher? I'm not actually sure, but I know that that kind of uh, maximum can be uh, surpassed if we use tandem or multi-junction solar cells where we combine um, several uh, photon absorbers. And then I, for that, I know that the efficiency is around, uh, probably around 40%, maybe above that even. So it's wow. great. Yeah. But this is in a lab, like really strict uh, research lab conditions. So it might differ in more, let's say, production environments. Yeah, of, of course. So silicon is used pretty extensively. Perovskites are catching up to, to silicon now. They can get the same levels of efficiency. So will we start seeing perovskites in the solar cells that we, we see around us? Well, there's still a way to a uh, bit of a way to go because uh, there are still some struggles with the stability. I mentioned the first set of sol- uh, perovskite solar cells that were produced in 2009. These first set of perovskite solar cells only lasted a couple of minutes before they started to degrade. But now uh, they can last for a thousand hours, a few cycles. There are still some things that need to be uh, improved in terms of stability before they can go become more popular commercially. Yeah, I guess that would be a huge issue for you, Laura, if you put your solar panels on your house and every you know, week you're having to change them. I, I wouldn't want to be climbing up onto the roof every single week to change solar cells. There's so many things that we have to take into consideration when, you know, making this technology going forward. I also just want to add, as a side, from my very limited experience of solar cells, I did some research a, a while ago on tungsten fuzz, which is this kind of nanostructure that forms inside fusion reactors. It turns the tungsten black, and so it has this potential for photovoltaic applications, which I thought was very exciting. So it's like something that might be bad in one field can be good in another, which I think is really important to remember as scientists, because sometimes we get really disappointed with our results or we see something that's not ideal for our application. But we should also try and think of there's other applications that may find it useful. That was a bit of a bit of a tangent. So going back to the, the solar cells, 
So we've discussed a bit about the two potential types of solar cell materials. So we've got uh, silicon and we've got perovskites. Could you tell us kind of a bit more about the specific material properties? Like what, what are they? Maybe we can start with perovskites. Yeah, perovskites has a molecular structure of the type ABX3. I don't know what that means. It sounds like a K-pop. <laughs> a K-pop. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, so it's basically an organic, inorganic metal halide compound. So it's got a lot of different uh, compounds in there. Like I said, it's got a structure type called uh, ABX3. So group A is an organic cation, so like methyl ammonium or formadinium. Group B is normally a metal cation, which can be lead or tin. Lead is one of the more popular ones. And then group X is normally a halogen, uh, halogen anion, so chloride, bromide, or iodide, or a mixture of these halogens. Yeah, so as you heard, they often use metal cat or lead as the metal cation. And as you know, there's some toxicity associated with lead. So lead-free options are also uh, being explored. Very cool. And Laura, what about the, the silicon ones? How are they made? So you, you start off with some, some really pure silicon and then you dope it with either something that will lead to sort of, I guess, like a deficit in electrons when they bond to each other or um, an excess of electrons, I think. So you generate something called a PN junction. Um, so you have these two slightly different compositions of silicon semiconductor silicon-based semiconductor, I should say. So the p-type might have boron in it, which makes it deficient in electrons, so it's overall like a positive charge. Uh, and the n-type commonly uses phosphorus in there, which generates a net negative charge. I think that's how I understand it anyway. Makes sense to me. P-positive, n-negative. It's a semiconductor, and I mentioned that bang gap of 1.1 electron volts. So when the sunlight hits it, electrons are liberated and they can flow from that negative to positive type of semiconductor and you get this charge that moves. Um, I think the voltage is um, dominated by that band gap. So even if you shine more intense light on your solar cell, you won't generate more voltage. You might produce more current though, so you might have more electrons flowing, but you can't change that voltage. So that's what I read about how they work and how their composition affects how they work. So doping with the boron and the phosphor um, makes it easier to generate that current. Very cool. So, but it seems like there's in both cases, there's some pretty crazy materials uh, involved in, in both of them. So we've got the lead for the perovskites and then boron and was it uh, what was the other lithium? Um, I, me the... I mentioned phosphorus for the other. Phosphorus. Sorry, meant to say yeah. phosphorus. Yeah. Uh, boron and phosphorus for the for the silicon one so it seems it's quite complex can I just ask because it's quite interesting that you said you have like you have n-type and p-type uh, silicon uh, solar cells uh, do you combine the two layers yeah so you kind of sandwich them together and there'll be this sort of I think it's called like a, a deficit region mm -hmm. in the middle where you've got something strange that I'm, I can't, don't really get my head around happens where, where the electrons yeah. flow. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's that difference, I guess, like the potential difference between the P-type and the N-type that helps generate that current. You generate it even if you didn't have the different types. It'd just be less efficient, I think. That's quite, it's a bit different in uh, perovskites because it's like an uh, ambipolar uh, type of material. So when it absorbs, when the perovskite absorbs a photon, it forms holes and electrons. And then the electrons are kind of separated. They transport through this electron transporting layer or titanium oxide. 
and then go to the anode, which is normally type of conducting glass. And then the holes go through like a hole transporting layer and then through to the cathode, which is often a metal made of gold or silver. So typically a perovskite device have five different layers with the perovskite sandwiched in the middle. Okay. So when I, I was looking into it, I got the impression there might be more to it in the silicon-based ones, but I didn't know if they were doing what you mentioned, multi-junction cells before. Yeah. If it was some sort of multi-junction thing or they were just overcomplicating it. Yeah. Because obviously you still need some like some layer that will stop the, the electrons from just going wherever the hell they want. Yeah. But yeah, it does sound like the perovskites operate in a slightly different way. Yeah. My mind is just blown by how complicated both of the technologies are. <laughs> as someone who's not an expert, it's it's crazy that something as simple as harnessing the power of the sun, but the, the technology behind it is is just mind blowing. Well you tried to make a Spider Man reference Maybe. there and go back to talking about fusion. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's just self serving. I have to bring it back to fusion every time, of course. But yeah, let's talk about Climate change, because that's what solar cells are meant to be one of the tools that we're using uh, in order to combat climate change and move us away from using fossil fuels and other things. That means they should be sustainable, right? Solar cells should be sustainable if we're using them to combat climate change. But what do we really mean by sustainability? And are they actually sustainable? We kind of talked about this in our What Do We Mean By Zero Waste episode a few months ago with uh, Antonia and Cara, who were sort of experts in this sort of thing. We talked about it then in terms of you obviously want to gather your raw materials in a way that does the least amount of harm or even makes a place better than it was before. And then once you've used your product, you need to dispose of it responsibly or reuse it or recycle it in some way. You don't want to just send it to landfill. I don't really know much about where the raw materials come from other than silicon is quite prominent in the world. But I do know that UK legislation means you can't just throw them away. You have to recycle them somehow. Um, And any solar panel made within the last, I think it's 15 years, the producer has to take it back from you and use it responsibly. And I found wildly conflicting stories about how recyclable solar panels are or how reusable they are as well. Um, They've got a design life of about 30-ish years. They gradually produce less electricity as they age, even though the conditions could be exactly the same. So you could stick your solar cell in a lab for 30 years and completely control the conditions and it will still produce less electricity over time just because materials change. They break down eventually. So you can't recharge them, for example, and and use them again after 30 years. Uh, Yeah, there are things like cracks develop and things like that some of the problems that i read about didn't relate to the silicon material itself it was things like electrical contacts break or the glass that covers it that could shatter or i think there's some sort of plastic covering as well that can turn brown because of sunlight so lots of ways they can break that don't seem to have a lot to do with the silicon which i was slightly surprised at in a way because i always considered that because that silicon is a crystalline material and you're bombarding it with photons and you've got electrons flying around that eventually bonds will break and defects will develop in that structure which does affect their efficiency but it's not the most common way that silicon solar cells fail apparently 
Um, so you could refurbish them, I guess. You could replace the glass or fix the electrical contact. And for the perovskites, is that the same thing? Or is it more, as you said before, Jennifer, about the stability? So it's actually the perovskites themselves that degrade over time? Uh, yeah, I think it's more related to the perovskite itself. I'm also thinking about the fabrication. Uh, so the energy that needs to be put in to actually fabricate the solar cell and then also the recycling bit, like how easy it is to recycle all the parts of the solar cell in the end. And for the recycling bit, I came across this uh, interesting uh, research paper that described how this can be done in further detail and how the cell can be disposed in a safe manner. And it seems like you're able to remove each layer because like I said before, typically a perovskite solar cell would uh, contain five different layers and you're able, you, it, you are able to separate each of them and take them out for further processing. And then some of these layers can be reused later on, like the lead containing perovskite can be recycled and reused to make more perovskites or something else. And the most expensive part of the solar cell is actually the uh, conductive glass uh, that can also be reused uh, for other purposes or for new perovskite solar cells. Another aspect of sustainability is obviously the uh, the lifetime of the these solar cells. And I think as long as we have these uh, stability issues, this is going to be a huge uh, obstacle in actually, I don't know, reaching these sustainability goals or uh, even commercial goals. So you're saying perovskites don't last anywhere near as long as um, silicon-based solar cells. So I can imagine at the minute, most of the energy would go into producing the solar cell. So it takes more energy to produce the perovskite solar cell than the perovskite solar cell will produce over its useful life. Yeah. And you need to get that balance right. Yes. Although I wouldn't say it's, I mean, they still last long, but probably not nearly as long as silicon-based solar cells. That's, yeah, that's my take. But uh, I think initially when it comes to the the amount of energy that's put into fabricate single crystalline silicon, that's... Uh, much higher than, for example, fabricating perovskites because it's just a solution-based uh, process where you use spin coatings and you anneal the solution so that to settle the perovskite film. And the annealing process is done in quite low temperatures, so below 100 degrees. But I think for silicon, it's much higher than that, right? Yeah, because you, you want to get the silicon really pure to begin with. And then you, it sounds like you go through a whole range of steps and it depends yeah. on exactly which manufacturer does what. Some of them use particle accelerators to dope the silicon, wow. which I think sounds like wildly inefficient because particle yeah. accelerators <laughs> tend to consume a lot of electricity. Yeah. So we've kind of covered some key areas of sustainability there in terms of, you know, the amount of energy it requires actually to manufacture these solar cells. I guess another key area of sustainable is do they produce enough electricity for us to be able to use them? And I guess that depends where they're located. Maybe it's better if they're somewhere sunny, unlike Manchester, which is quite, <laughs> quite great a lot of the time. Funnily enough, I was just reading an article about how Dubai is a really inappropriate place for solar panels because it gets it's too hot and they get less efficient at higher temperatures. Um, and there's a lot, of, a lot of dust as well. So 
you cover your solar cell in dust and you, the photons can't come in, but the panel gets really hot and it becomes less efficient anyway. And apparently Dubai is just not, not the place to do it, even though it could be really sunny. That's crazy. I'd never have thought that. I'd be like, that's the ideal place to put solar panels. So there needs to be like a kind of compromise in terms of climate conditions. So in that case, is it better to have the solar panels? solar panels solar panels all in one place with the optimum conditions and then somehow transport the electricity we produce yeah. yeah this is what i wonder see if they work better at colder temperatures are you better having them closer towards the poles of the earth where you obviously get sunlight for like what six months of the year at one pole and then the other six months of the year at the other pole and it's really cold right so they should be really efficient and then yeah, you just kind of oscillate between the two so you've got a constant supply of electricity i don't know maybe that's a really stupid idea makes sense in my head though that's a very clever idea i think i like that we just need a way to figure out how to transport the electricity we would produce right which i guess is more of a i feel there is technology to transport electricity we do that every day but it's very government specific so I guess that requires political cooperation if we want to share electricity between many different countries. Yeah. Rather than rather than a scientific Yeah, I point. go for the science and everyone else. All the engineers say, no, you can't do that because of something else. <laughs> That's what happened last week in our previous episode. In some countries, the power grid system isn't as extensive. So it's down to more down to every individual to make that uh, supply themselves with energy so in this case you would have more of a decentralized energy supply system where people would maybe in this case it would be better to you know have your own yeah exactly yeah see in a way i prefer that idea because i have no idea exactly where my electricity comes from at the minute and i don't really know what goes into making electricity get from where it is to where i am but if there was a community of photovoltaics engineers and electrical engineers near me and I could see the solar panels and I could talk to the people that ran them I'd understand it better and I think I'd feel a little bit more comfortable about using these things and not just taking them for granted yeah I agree with that like you appreciate things more Mm. and I guess it's more accessible I feel smaller things are always more accessible to people like if you have your own supply then you control control that basically that's (laughs) yours to, to do and more people can use it for example people who grow heroin heroin farmers in Afghanistan have made good use of solar technology. There was a really interesting article that we read. So that's one example of people taking control of their electricity production. Not too sure the production of heroin is the best use there. Not necessarily the best, but interesting (laughs) nonetheless. But I also think one of the things that we've covered is that it's really complex technology. So that's another thing that makes me think is it easy for people to maintain them if it breaks? Do you then need specific engineers to come in or is it something you could fix yourself if there were any problems just because of the complex technology that's involved? Yeah, so again, having some local engineers that know how these things work, I think would be more useful than just like sending it out to someone and saying, there you go, there's an electricity supply. You have to figure out how it works though. Yeah. Is there any other simpler technology that we could use instead of solar panels to harness the sun? Um, There are like solar collection systems, aren't there? I mean, the way photovoltaics are going is they're getting more and more complicated. They can try and make them more efficient. When Jennifer mentioned those multi-junction cells, that's effectively putting more and more layers of more complicated things that are made from different chemical elements that will use like different parts of the energy spectrum of the light that comes from the sun. Um, or we'll, we'll split the photons. So yeah, um, we seem to be going more complicated, but I didn't really I didn't really come across much that was simpler. 
in terms of solar, solar yeah, cells. So- there are these solar stoves that I've seen uh, in Afghanistan, but it's like a giant mirror, basically, which, well, lots of little mirrors, I think. And then they focus the light in the center. So people can use that for cooking and like for heating stuff pretty effectively without any emissions. So that's a really, I found that a really nice, simple kind of technology. But yeah, I think if we want to produce electricity, the technology does seem to be kind of becoming more more and more complicated. Yeah, it would be nice if things went simpler because it it means you can, you're more likely to be able to maintain it, which again gives you that sense of, I can use this thing and be a bit more self-sufficient rather than relying on the electrical engineers to come and fix my solar cell or replace the glass on it because it's cracked because of temperature differences or something yeah and i think that's for all technologies right a lot of stuff now we can't see how it works yeah i find that really bad like you know if your phone breaks you can't open it if your laptop breaks you have to take it they will fix it you can't fix it well certain brands (laughs) other brands are still better for laptops but apple especially is really bad um for this Uh, i feel another use of silicon there we go but um (laughs) not solar panels but yeah it's definitely something to think Uh, about yeah i was just looking up as as we were talking you're asking about where's better could you do it somewhere it's really sunny um apparently the average installation in the uk can generate something like three thousand kilowatt hours per year but the average consumption is less than that per household depending on the size of your house of course so in theory it would be possible to generate all of your own electricity and that's in like standard uk weather so not being incredibly sunny and not being incredibly hot or incredibly cold, presumably. That's great. So everyone should be getting solar panels on their houses. Yeah, everyone in the UK anyway. But Dubai, you've still got a problem. Which I really would have thought at the beginning of this episode, uh, it would have been the other way around. Did you know that the largest the concentrated solar power plant project is in Morocco? It's called the Noor Power Plant. That's very cool. And Noor means light. Oh, ah, cool. I knew none of these things. That's pretty cool that they're making a whole power plant out of solar cells, actually. I've never heard of that. So is it currently sort of connected to their national electricity grid and supplying people's homes? Do you know? No, I'm not sure. It looks like it's placed in the desert somewhere. Uh, I wonder how dusty it is. Is it like Dubai and they have to clean it? Yeah, I don't know. But it looks like it's going to cover an area of 2,500 hectares. Whoa. That's massive. Oh, yeah. No, it it will supply electricity to their grid. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. It sounds like that's a good place to come to an end of the episode. I've definitely learned a lot. I think we've discussed the two main candidates for solar panels. The one that's currently used is the, the silicon solar panels. But perovskites are this really cool new technology that are accelerating uh incredible speed in less than 20 years they've they've almost got the same efficiency as silicon now and it's more of a developing the longevity of the panels to make sure they're stable we've discussed kind of what sustainability really means and considered the different parts of manufacturing process how we get the electricity where's the best place to put the the solar panels apparently the uk is not bad who'd have thought it so that's our take on solar cells find us on twitter if you want to carry on this conversation or leave a comment on the episode and see you next time the views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them they do not represent any industry or organization if you enjoyed listening to these views it would really help us out if you could rate us leave a review and tell a friend this podcast was sponsored by no one but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering please get in touch